1795, October, November, December. Three months in which Napoleon Bonaparte takes on tens of thousands of armed Parisians amidst the blood and gore of Vendomier. In the early hours of the 5th of October, these royalists attempt to come forward, outnumbering the Republican defenders by five or six to one. Austrian, Prussian and Russian representatives meet to dissolve the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Poles were seen as the righteous downtrodden. Every liberal regarded the partitions as an illegal and barbaric act. And in North Italy, the French perform a real comeback by sending the Austrians packing at the Battle of Luano. What looked horribly disastrous for the French in October turns out to be an enormous victory, which will be the most decisive battle in Italy before Bonaparte. I'm Alexander Stevenson, and this is episode 16 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which the whiff of grape shot hangs over Paris. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792-1815 period three months at a time. And for the three months covered by this episode, I'm joined by David Andrus, Adam Zamoyski and Rick Schneid, not to mention Paul DeMay with a quick uh, follow-up from the last episode too. We'll come to all of that in a moment, but first here's the headline developments to bring you up to speed. And in this quarter, the brewing crisis between royalists and republicans comes to a head in early October, but it's decisively resolved by the intervention of the military, and in particular, the intervention of Napoleon Bonaparte and Jacques Murat. Thought I'd chuck him in there as well. Uh, their deployment of artillery overnight helps the outnumbered army defend the convention by giving those opposing them the soon-to-be legendary whiff of grape shot. The Directory then proceeds to establish itself in the aftermath. Bonaparte is made Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the Interior. He doesn't have too much to worry about from another British attempted landing on the Poitou coast that doesn't get very far. Uh, meanwhile, in Italy, there's no such respite. The French seek to re-establish lines of communication with Genoa, which had become isolated by a joint offensive carried out by the Austrians and the Piedmontese in the last quarter. There is uh, a French victory at Luana, though, but Scherer doesn't follow it up with uh, much to write home about. And in October, Austrian, Prussian and Russian representatives meet on the 24th to dissolve the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, and I also want to mention the interception of a British convoy, which is a real setback and one of those rare but not particularly much talked about um, triumphs for the French Navy. 
By the way, you might have noticed me constantly telling Charles and Alex that they mustn't get ahead of themselves and refer to events still to come, events you know that haven't happened yet in our chronology. But alas, um, as has been pointed out to me on social media, in the last episode I committed a howler of this kind myself by suggesting that Archduke Charles had notched up a victory against Jordan at Würzburg. Clearly, this isn't the case in 1795. It might be something coming up sooner or later, though. Now, rather unusually for this podcast, I'm going to hand over to Paul DeMay for a really quick two-minute rundown of developments on the Rhine, which really describe um, the uh, upshot of the story that we'd started in the last episode when Paul had talked us through the opening stages of the Mannheim Offensive. Uh, Well, we haven't quite got time for a full segment, but here's a very quick run-through of Paul describing what happened next. Claire Fates um, basically marched to outflank Jordan, uh, totally ignored the line of neutrality. And Jordan, whose army was short of supplies and had no support from Pichgrew, had no option but to fall back. And then Clairefait, because he'd pushed Jordan back, was able to turn against um, Clairefait, uh, sorry, against um, Pichgrew. At the end of October, he burst out from mines, attacked the blockading force and drove them um, back uh, and they had to destroy their own ammunition in their retreat so the blockade of Mainz has been defeated meanwhile Wurmser had been um, waiting to launch his own attack and on the 18th of October he um, marched against the French at Mannheim and pushed them back and was himself able to open um, a siege of Mannheim which he did on the 11th of November and it surrendered on the 21st. So basically, the French had gone from marching across the Rhine and uh, besieging uh, Mainz, capturing Mannheim, to a situation where they'd been pushed right back. And Pistru decides to retreat all the way back to Landau. Basically, the French campaign, which had started so well, had ended in tatters. um, Clairefait proposed an armistice which was accepted and that really is the end of the the thing but effectively once Mannheim had been um, cleared and captured the campaign was over Okay, thanks to Paul for adding that in there. But I'm completely confused about Pichigrou, which is just as well that, as usual, um, I've got Charles Asdale, Professor Emeritus at the University of Liverpool, and uh, Alex Mika Baridze, Professor at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. Um, So I'm really desperate to work out what the deal is with with Pichigrou. Was he a traitor? Uh, Traitor to who? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to the cause, maybe. <laughs> to France, I don't think so. Yeah, again, with, with Pichigrou, as with many other uh, of, of the journals of this uh, generation, the question of motives is, is very, very interesting. Um, I don't think, personally, from having, you know, looked at over, over the years various materials, that he was a traitor in the sense that he was bribed, corrupted by the foreign power. And that's what would Charles and I be discussing for several podcasts. There is a lot of disillusionment uh, with the revolution. And I don't find this uh, surprising that Pichigrou, who had royalist leanings, 
was disappointed with the revolution and he tried to do something about it. Now, from a perspective of a revolutionary, it would have been a treasonous uh, behavior, especially effectively sacrificing hundreds if not thousands of lives of, uh, of French soldiers. But I don't find him treasonous in its traditional sense of word. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, I think. Um, on top of that, I might say that people rallied to the French Revolution, as, as they would to, to any movement or cause or whatever, with, with a variety of different motives in hand. The generals clearly were a very ambitious group. When ambition, you know, their personal status, their position, runs happily along in tandem with, with the, the cause of the revolution, well, fine, all's well. But when you get a situation in which their status is threatened, where their prestige is at risk, they switch sides. Now, I mean, um, if you take Du Maurier, Du Maurier is the obvious example. Uh, was Du Maurier a traitor? Well, yes. Um, did that mean he, he he'd always opposed the French Revolution? No. When did he switch? When did he switch sides? When things went wrong. So I, you know, I, I think that this is the sort of lens through which we must examine the problem. If you accept that ideology was of far less import than has has often been claimed, then then Pichegru's behaviour becomes more understandable. Yeah, I think it's easy to empathise, that's for sure. Um, I don't think anyone would want to be in charge of French forces during the 1790s at pretty much any stage. Um, well, let me ask you about the theatre as a whole then and the strategic relevance of, of this setback that Pichegru ultimately hasn't succeeded when he perhaps really ought to have done. As sports journalists sometimes write irritatingly, uh, he perhaps could and perhaps should have succeeded. So what does this mean then at, at the end of 1795 in strategic terms as we're sort of back to square one on the Rhine again? Well, yet, yet again, it comes over very clearly that French armies were simply not as superior as is often made out. The ancien regime armies were perfectly capable of putting up a good fight. So, so to me, the chief point that comes through is actually the resilience of the armies of the Ancien Regime. That's very striking. Now, Alex, can I ask you about something else that I forgot to chuck in at the beginning, which is, uh, if, if my various books are right, then we, we've got the French annexation of the Austrian Netherlands, that's modern-day Belgium on October the 1st. So that's a point often forgotten amidst the drama of Vendomia, which, which we'll come to shortly. Um, that's a pretty significant development, isn't it? All of a sudden, France, metropolitan France, has Belgium stuck to it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and that's one of the themes, again, we've discussed of the uh, territorial aggrandizement of France. And uh, as a way of uh, kind of piggybacking of Charles's comments, what Charles was saying is that France was lacking the Bonaparte. Right, Charles? Um, yeah, oddly enough, oddly enough, I would say that if you if you look at... France's military victories. There, there are approximately, let's say, there are twenty-one major battles in the French Revolutionary Wars. And by a major battle, I mean clashes of over fifteen thousand a side, or something like that. Um, of those, the the French win fourteen, 
and the Allies win seven. But if you look at the French victories of those 14, seven are won by Napoleon. In other words, take out Napoleon, remove Napoleon from the equation, if only we could, and, and, and you have a very different picture. I do think that luck, fortune, fate, whatever you might call it, can have a, a pretty major impact on history. And the fact is that the, the France was blessed, in a military sense at least, with Napoleon Bonaparte. So, so yes, Alex, I do agree. Good. I just wanted to, I just want you to be recorded <laughs> saying that the reason is <laughs> a, a, a way of connecting is that to Alex's original question that with the Austrian Netherlands and next, what I see here is the pattern of the French behavior long before Napoleon came to power that underscores the uh, aggressiveness of French foreign policy, desire and readiness to annex neighboring territories and reorganize them, something that Napoleon will be effectively continuation of. Let's say Napoleon had died sometime in 1795, 1796, right? Fell on the battlefield, maybe leading the charges. Not, don't want to spoil this story, but he will lead the charges in Italy. Would the French Revolution um, continue its expansion? Yes. Would they have annexed more territory? Yes. Now, would they have been as successful as uh, ultimately the empire was? Probably not. But I think that's an important element in my view of that annexation of Austria Netherlands is one of those moments when you see that whether Napoleon had come to power or not, whether he existed or not, France would have been determined to, deter, uh, to shape the destinies of neighboring territories. Well, it certainly seems to me like the high stakes of the French revolutionary period, this sort of heady hysteria that um, filled the streets of Paris in 1792, continues in the personal ambition of, of someone like Napoleon Bonaparte, who's able to, to, to push on and continues to gamble and gamble, in part because he recognises that his, his power and authority rests on that. But we are getting ahead of ourselves in one sense, but perhaps not in another, in that in the opening days of this three, three months that we're looking at now, one of those high stake situations plays out. And yet again, lives are at stake much more than careers. The entire future of France and arguably the European continent uh, hinges on what's about to happen. And so um, to complete the story of French politics for this series, for 1794 and 1795, well, here's really, this is really the dramatic ending to, um, to season two of this podcast. And here's Professor David Andres of the University of Portsmouth. He talked us through in the last episode, setting up this crisis. Well, here's him describing the denouement. The convention has decided to bring in these new constitutional arrangements, as it has essentially a cheated democracy to bring them forward. Um, knowing that it faces a very strong threat from, from what we can generally think of as royalism, although it's a very broad coalition, um, and that this is, this is rooted in Paris itself, um, a, a reminder of the extraordinary complexity of the politics of the time, that Paris, through the terror, looks like it's this 
home of ultra-radicalism, home of the sans-culottes. But there are also many people in Paris who've turned against all of that, um, particularly from the western half of the city, the more prosperous half of the city. And so there are very strong forces, forces from the citizens' militia, forces from the locality, um, prepared to act against what they see the convention doing, against its denial of democracy, but also in their own way to, to act with physical force when, when politics isn't working. Um, and so across the 4th and 5th of October, that a very real uh, military attempt is made, a, a kind of militant uprising from the west of the city to, to uh, physically attack the convention, to take it over and, and presumably then, then to, to actually consider a royalist um, restoration. Right. So this wasn't the sans-culottes, you know, radicals, as, as we'd seen before. It was from the, the more prosperous western half of Paris that was rising up. Yes, exactly. I mean, they, they have refound their political voice in the last year. And this, this, again, is one of those things to remember about the terror in general. Although, whatever the impression of it we get, it never actually manages to crush other political forces completely. They remain subdued, but ready to rise again and re ready to turn on the convention, which is, uh, which is refusing to pay them any attention, which is refusing to give them a meaningful vote in their political future and imposing this new constitution on them. So the, the, the way forward for them is, is a rising, Re remembering again how often over the last five years the revolution has been taken forward by um, militant imposition, by the use of force. This, this is no longer anything unusual for them to contemplate. OK, then, so here goes, so that it's time to put the politics to one side and to resolve this through a show of strength. And how is it that one side wins here and the other loses? Well, it's, it's partly about the confrontation between professional military leadership and, um, and several tens of thousands of people who aren't professional soldiers. This, again, is, is one of the ironies that so many of these victories in politics in a political insurrection through the revolution are won because there isn't anyone to effectively fight them off. And it initially appears that that will be the case here. The, this royalist rising puts together a force which is estimated at about 30,000 men under arms. Whatever that means in practice, how effective any of them are at using those arms is another question. The convention is scrabbling around and, and manages to pull together a force of only about 5,000 men and initially orders the, the Republican general um, Manu to make some efforts to, to suppress this, um, to advance into the areas of, of the uprising and, and, and break it up. But as so often happens in, in Republican um, political military leadership, the subordinate generals beneath him don't think it can be done. They refuse these orders. And, and for a little while between the 4th and the 5th, it seems to hang by a thread um, whether, whether the defenders of the, of the convention will, will simply collapse. So with these subordinate generals refusing, Menu is pushed aside in favour of Barra, who on his CV has some pretty effective dealings um, with, uh, with force and, and you know, getting the job done, as we've seen in Thermidor. Uh, so Barra is put in charge, but, but he's going to turn to his, uh, his chum, his mate, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, exactly. Um, Barat and Napoleon have, have known each other during during the siege of Toulon, um, back back during the Terror. 
Bonaparte is one of the key leaders that's present here. Um, one of the things that he does in, in conjunction with Murat, who will later become his famous cavalry leader, is to ensure that a force of artillery is gathered um, around the convention um, to, to defend it properly. And it's then in the early hours of the 5th of October that these royalists attempt to come forward, outnumbering the Republican defenders by five or six to one. But in the face of professional military leadership, in the face of professionally um, emplaced cannon fire, they aren't able to make any progress. Um, and over the course of a couple of hours, their, their morale is, is worn away by casualties until they're retreating and fairly easily driven off in the end by that combination of cannon fire um, and cavalry charges, which is able to follow it up. Um, leave, leaving several hundred casualties. It is, it, is a, it is a very serious engagement which could have gone the other way without that artillery, without that professional leadership, which will, will leave, leave Napoleon promoted and, and able to claim the glory for himself for the future. Well, this episode is called The Whiff of Grapeshot, which is that famous phrase used by Bonaparte to describe his role and frame his role here. Is is that the right the right title for this episode in terms of summing up von Dumier? Um, well, it, it it sets the scene really for for the next five years really, where force will replace politics in all kinds of ways, um, and, and until eventually the the rule of a single man by force will will replace politics. Gosh, and this is the perfect way to end season two, really. I have to say. So, but but but, but before we get onto all of that. Let's just quickly summarise the fallout, you know, because this we want to cover off the the, th- the whole three months. So, what are the the French changes to their governance later in October? What were they, and how would you summarise the further events in November and December? I suppose it's a case of looking to sum up where we've got to by the end of uh, this year, the, the end of seventeen ninety five. Mm-hmm. Well, mo- most most of the rest of seventeen ninety five is is consumed sort sort of on the domestic scene by um, consolidating the the meaning of having a new constitution. These partial elections go ahead under a sort of atmosphere of repression in which, again, both the terrorists and the royalists are strongly discouraged from taking part in any of these public processes. Um, There is a sense already that the army as a force in general um, is is becoming the, the sort of the right arm of the political leadership and can be used both sort of locally and nationally to enforce these controls. So it is this large paradox of bringing into existence this very balanced liberal constitution, gathering together these two elected chambers and having them start to decorously debate, um, electing the the five men to represent the directory, or or whom one is Barra, attempting to create an atmosphere of of calm, an atmosphere of rationality and moderation, while also continuing to look both left and right extremely suspiciously, um, continuing to manipulate local and national politics to make sure that nobody dangerous gets in and allowing things to look like they're calming down, while while again increasingly relying on force to, to hold this narrow elite in power.
Well, let me ask the same question that I put to David. Um, Charles, does the whiff of grape shot sum this situation up, that this is a case of just blowing the crowd away with some well-placed violence? In the short term, in in, in terms of the immediate crisis, yes. Uh, Napoleon succeeds in, in, in mastering the situation. The whiff, of, the whiff of grape shot isn't in itself quite enough to do the business, but uh, it, it goes a long way towards doing the business. That said, the problem doesn't go away. OK, royalism is, is crushed in Paris, but there are still plenty of royalists in the, in the provinces. You know, they were out of range. So, so the mere use of force is not enough. There is still a political battle to be waged. And, and so the same question to put to you, Alex, after Thermidor. Is there a possibility that this time we might see an end to instability? Um, you know, I imagine it wouldn't have looked like that if we were in Paris at the end of 1795. But again, this is a crisis resolved. Is there now more of a sense that, you know, maybe that'll be it. Maybe the, these recent years of turmoil, uh, th- this might be the, the crisis that finally clears the thunder in the air. In some ways it is. And I think that's where I would put a subtle distinction from on, on what we have said is that the Vandemir ends the royal acute threat that royalism pre- presented in, in Paris to the uh, national government. After Vandemir, we don't have direct royalist threat to the national government. We do have, as Charles pointed out, royalism in the rest of the country, especially in the rural areas, in the western France, in south France. But this is more of an undercurrent. This is more of a long-term, indeed, problem, but it doesn't undermine, it doesn't threaten the existence of the national government. So in that sense, Vandermeer is a, is a success. But there is a, something else I want to um, add on this, and that is... Napoleon is oftentimes uh, accused of betraying revolution, uh, killing the republic or betraying republic. I'm not one of those who believe that because when I look at the events of 1795, I see revolution and and republic effectively dead there. If we talk about betrayal of revolutionary ideals, this is where it happens. Revolution for all practical matters is done. Uh, If we look at the revolution as the progression uh, of, of these ideals, reforms, changes aiming at improving, however you define that improvement of a society and state, the 95 is the end point. Well, I hadn't appreciated it in that sense, but now you put it like that, because this is such a sellout, isn't it, that you have those in power who simply have to yeah, turn against those ideals. It's very editorially convenient, given that this is the last episode of the season, and so I'm I'm delighted to endorse that. I hope, Charles, that you will too. I would agree with Alex. I mean, I I think that we've moved into a post-revolutionary period. Uh, we we the, and the revolution has has already lost its way. It's a great place to finish the episode, but we've got a little bit more uh, to cover off, and um, there is some fighting in this three months in in North Italy. And to to introduce um, another voice to the podcast, uh, Rick Schneid is the Herman and Louise Smith Professor of History at High Point University in the States, and he's going to be. You're going to hear a lot of him uh, in the, in season three as he talks us through um, what happens militarily in North Italy in 
1796 and early 97. Um, but here he is really introducing this theatre to kick things off and to describe it in a bit more detail. So I, I actually began by asking him what's to expect in the North Italy holiday brochure. Well, of course... Well, of course, uh, uh, the kingdom of uh, Sardinia, Piedmont or Piedmont Sardinia, uh, was created purposely to separate the kingdom of France from Habsburg possessions in northern Italy, such as the, the Milanese or, or Lombardy. Uh, and uh, it controls the Alpine gates, the western Alpine gates. Uh, and so you have, of course, the Riviera, which is not mountainous, but within a mile or a couple miles of the uh, coast, you are you hit up against the mountains. Streams flow from, uh, well, it's the Apennine, the Genoese Alps or Apennines, uh, they sort of converge uh, into the, uh, the Riviera. So you have a very, um, a relatively flat, narrow coastal plain that runs from, let's say, Nice to Genoa. Uh, and then you hit up against the mountains in which there are a number of uh, significant mountain passes. Uh, there is the Stura Valley, uh, there is the Tanaro and the Bormida, uh, and then of course there's a valley that runs from uh, Savona to Carcare, which will be the one that uh, the French will use quite often and Napoleon later uh, will use. So the geography is uh, quite um, steep in mountains on the western side of the Alps, but uh, rising up from uh, Genoa, certainly you have very mountainous terrain, but not the same elevations as the Alps. Uh, so a, a bit less treacherous. Uh, and so the when the French and the Austrians and the Piedmontese are fighting, uh, they're fighting in some cases on these ridgelines, but in most cases they're fighting in the river valleys uh, uh, because it's, of course, much easier uh, but the geography um, of these uh, alpine passes, they're also uh, crisscrossed by mule tracks and hunting trails, uh, which all sides are quite familiar with. Uh, and then once you get over the Alps uh, from the uh, west or you get over from the Riviera, the, the, the mountains, uh, you enter the Padana Plain or the, uh, the P Plain of the Po, the North Italian Plain. Uh, and there it's it's quite flat. It's it's wonderful farmland, uh, great rivers, but uh, it is also crisscrossed with canals and vineyards. Uh, it is it is while flat, uh, it is not the easiest terrain to traverse. Um, and the Po River is, of course, the uh, the most dominant of the river lines that can only be crossed in certain places or by barges. Okay, that's very comprehensive. So I think we've got a good sense of the, the overall geography. But of course, Bonaparte would have um, understood this from his, his time with the Bureau Topographique. Well, and in fact, uh, he would know this from even before that because he was a, a commander of artillery in the Army of Italy after Toulon uh, and had served with uh, the Army of Italy and General Dumberion in 1794 and had in fact um, participated in the French advance uh, from Savona to Carcari and onto the North Italian plain. So um, not only later on in the summer of 1795 when he joins the Bureau Topographique will he be able to uh, explore these maps, but he was there. Uh, he, he had seen these passes, he had seen the terrain, and so has a very, a very good first-hand knowledge uh, of the theater that he will eventually be fighting in. 
So for now, what's the situation in this quarter, the final three months of 1795? But I think there's some squabbling going on between the Austrians and the, their allies. Well, and in, yes, and in fact, uh, this is this is critically important to understand that um, when we study the French Revolutionary period, particularly when we look at uh, Northern Italy in preparation for uh, you know sort of build up to Napoleon's campaign, um, we we tend to look at it in a vacuum. But there, historically, again, the Piedmontese uh, and the Austrians uh, do not get along. They can agree that they don't like the French and that they are. This is a marriage of convenience, uh, and in fact. In fact, in 1792, when the French uh, go to war with Piedmont, Sardinia, they, the Piedmontese ask the Austrians for an alliance and they are initially rebuffed. Uh, but eventually, uh, they sign on to this, this treaty, which is highly restrictive, uh, that limits the number of Austrian troops that can be in Piedmont, uh, exclusive of the Austrian army in Lombardy. As time goes on, this changes. Uh, as the French pressure increases into 1794. And so the Austrians uh, and the Piedmontese uh, see, uh, well, the Austrians see the Piedmontese as a, nece a necessary ally, uh, but they don't like the Piedmontese in the sense that they are the most powerful of the Italian kingdoms. Uh, the Piedmontese perceive themselves as certainly the military power of Italy, which they are exclusive of the Austrians. Um, but the, the Piedmontese objectives and the Austrian objectives are not uniform. This is a primary theater of war for Piedmont. It is their country that they're fighting to save uh, from the the French who had invaded Nice and Savoy in September 1792, and the uh, Piedmontese want to liberate it. The Austrians, Italy for the Austrians is really a tertiary theater of war. Belgium and the Germany were certainly the primary theaters. Belgium is gone by 1794, uh, and Germany uh, remains actually Germany south of the Main River, right? Because the Prussians had left the war in seven uh, uh, with the Peace of Basel in ninety-five. So there's tensions and there's enormous distrust, and the um, from the Piedmontese perspective, the incompetence of Austrian commanders or their lack of willingness to go for the kill uh, is really the problem. So then we we do see an offensive um, in this uh, final three months of 1795 um, centred around Luana. We see three columns going forwards. Um, were, were they Austrian columns or, or Piedmontese? Uh, they were both. Uh, they were both. Uh, we have uh, a very strange nature of military command, and so it can often be confusing when, we, when you're reading the histories. Uh, the Piedmontese army uh, is under the command of General Baron Coley. Coley, although uh, Italian ethnically, is an Austrian general who oh. was uh, put in charge. <laughs> yes, he was put. He no was, wonder he I was, was confused. <laughs> Yes, this is this happens all the time, and he's in charge of the Piedmontese army uh, as part of the agreement with Austria. And then you have an Aus um, an Austrian auxiliary corps, which is under General Provera, who also has an Italian name. So you think it's, a, and he's in charge <laughs> of an Austrian Piedmontese corps. But then you have in 1795, you have General uh, De Vins, uh, and Vins uh, is is commander of the Austrian army in Lombardy. So you have these three different Austrian commanders that include Piedmontese forces, 
And Coley is very well trusted and liked by the Piedmontese, despite being an Austrian general. Uh, but they see he's competent. Uh, he has performed well. The Piedmontese troops and officers like working under him. The Piedmontese despise Vins. Uh, they, they, they see him as um, incapable of, of achieving any victories. And so this offensive that is launched into the Riviera um, is, in fact, a Austrian and Piedmontese offensive. Uh, it's uh, And it is successful in kicking the French out of the Riviera. Uh, and in fact, it costs Kellerman, General Kellerman of famous Valmy fame, who was in charge of the French armies of the Alps in Italy. He is removed from command by the Directory for his failure. This is a dramatic defeat uh, by the French. Oh. Hang on a second. So this, yes, this this, this isn't quite um, what I was expecting. That that actually, you've got a real setback for the French. I mean, how bad was it? How, how far back were they forced? Uh, they are forced back, um, not quite out of the Riviera, but uh, they, Genoa and Savona, pretty much two thirds of the way uh, down the Riviera uh, towards Nice, uh, and it's an enormous setback. And it looks like, uh, certainly by the end of October, that the French are going to lose that wonderful uh, strategic position on the Riviera. Um, and if not for Scherer being replacing Kellerman and launching a counteroffensive that will culminate in the Battle of Loano, which will be the most decisive battle in Italy before Bonaparte. So this Battle of Luano, then, um, th this is um, a significant save for the French who were able to turn the tide in November. Absolutely. This, this uh, battle uh, really alters the situation. What looked horribly disastrous for the French in October turns out to be an enormous victory. Uh, and so what, uh, in fact, uh, General Scherer does is he sends Serrouillet with a diversionary uh, division uh, up to up the uh, Bormida Valley, uh, and it pins Coley in place. Uh, and then he sends uh, Augereau barreling straight down the Riviera into a frontal attack on the Austrian positions at Luano, while Massena with his divisions are, is carrying out a flanking maneuver through the hills on these mule tracks that I was talking about. Uh, and in fact, um, while Augereau is having a rough go and suffering enormous casualties, uh, it's on the second day of the battle that Massena comes in and flanks the Austrian position. Uh, and it is a decisive victory, and the Austrians end up turning tail back across the mountains uh, and uh, into uh, the, uh, P the Padana Plain and winter quarters. And so, yeah, what's the state of play as, as we enter winter quarters at, at the end of 1795? It seems like Piedmont might be on the brink. Um, well, and in fact, they, they are. They are. Uh, the Piedmontese, uh, 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 Victor Amadeus, the third king of Piedmont, uh, Sardinia, uh, ha along with his uh, counselors, court council, uh, decide that if the Austrians cannot provide any type of victory, if they cannot provide any type of security, then they may go the way of previous Piedmontese kings, and that is switching sides. Uh, they are loath to do it. Victor Amadeus's daughters uh, were married to uh, Louis XVI's brothers, so there is a familial relationship there. Uh, but uh, the the King of Piedmont Sardinia is worried about revolution in Turin. Uh, if he could secure a peace with the French, it would avoid potentially internal problems. 
Um, but they are willing to give the Austrians uh, one more chance. Uh, there's uh, uh, one of the uh, Piedmontese generals uh, said at this time, he said that Austrians are always pr promising battalions, but none never arrive, uh, none ever arrive. Uh, and it's the sense of uh, bad leadership, hollow promises. And so this is really the point where if the Austrians do not achieve a victory in the spring campaign in 96, uh, then it looks like uh, the Piedmontese may in fact seek a, a peace with France as the Prussians and Spanish had done the previous year. Um, and so this is, this is the general plan, but they don't want to do it if they don't have to. And this is why uh, de Vins is removed and Beaulieu uh, is put in place by uh, the Austrians. Uh, they, they put in a new commander uh, and they issue him new orders. And in fact, the Austrians are keenly aware of the dicey situation. In fact, I have from the uh, Austrian uh, war archives, uh, the orders uh, that uh, uh, the emperor writes, uh, Kaiser Franz writes to Beaulieu, in which he says very clearly that, uh, essentially that he's aware that the Piedmontese are only loyal as long as we can prevent them uh, from being overrun by the French or provide them security. Otherwise, uh, he referred to them as a, a kingdom, a pusillanimous kingdom. Uh, and he, it's very clear that uh, he knows if, uh, if his army cannot provide some sort of victory in the spring that the, the, the Piedmontese will probably jump ship. So I wanted to ask um, as a follow-up uh, Rick mentioned the strategic importance of the of the Riviera and, of course, of the North Italian plain. But, you know, but, I, but I, is, is this increased by the fact that it's just this in the Rhine now where Austria can engage France? Why does the Riviera matter quite so much? Uh, Riviera is important for a couple of reasons. One, it is uh, the most convenient way of invading Italy, northern Italy for sure. So you have a... In effect, three ways of getting to Italy. One is by sea, which the French historically struggled in this time. Second is through the mountains, and that will be quite an undertaking. And the third is by that Carniche through the coastal area, um, Riviera, and straight into Piedmont, Lombardy. The northern Italy, as Napoleon will famously put it in the next season of our podcast, uh, Northern Italy were the most, fer you know, the most fertile lands in the world, um, and that, of course, was quite lucrative to have, quite, quite profitable. And the other really interesting point that came out of that discussion, you know, I hadn't, I honestly hadn't really grasped who the Piedmontese were. You know, that you do have the distinct identities of these North Italian kingdoms, um, but the Piedmontese certainly the most militarily significant and able. I'd sort of, I don't know, I just had them in my head as being much of a muchness but Charles could you pick out you know some of who they were and what were their various characteristics well um, Piedmont is a um, at least prior to the revolution is a state which which straddled the Alps I mean its northernmost reaches were around Grenoble and Chambéry and and then through the Alps down through Turin which is the capital I don't think they had a Mediterranean coastline because the Republic of Gen yeah that's right the Republic of Genoa denies them an outlet to the sea, but they possessed the island of of Sardinia. 
How does that work in practice? How on earth can you make that work as a country? Well, I mean, if you think about East, East and West Pakistan, you know, prior to 1971, I mean, you know, you've got you've got one country separated by 1,500 miles of, of India or something, 2,000 miles. But anyway, so so you have you have Piedmont Sardinia, um, an absolute monarchy in 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 the hands of the of the dynasty of, of Savoy. Traditionally, a major military power in a regional sense. So the Piedmontese army had had a pretty good reputation and, and, a, and a pretty good history. Now they had they had already the Piedmontese had already lost out to the French Revolution because um, quite early on the French occupy uh, the, the the old Duchy of Savoie, which is which is where the the, the dynasty originates from so they occupy grenoble they they occupy chambéry i mean fairly obviously they had an eye for the ski opportunities and sorry that was a bad joke <laughs> but but no quite seriously um savoir is taken over by the french pretty early on and that obviously alienates the piedmontese but as with many of these minor states a principle which is very, very important is is not royalism; it's realism. These states, these these states, if they want to survive, they cannot simply defy reality, and and that means that the Piedmontese were always quite capable of doing a deal with the French. But can I ask why, therefore, didn't the Austrians treat them better? If you're in a situation where, you know, what a great buffer state that Piedmont ought to have been for the Austrians against the French. Well, they thought they did. <laughs> <laughs> they thought they did, Alex. Uh, uh, this was the Austrian way of handling them. Uh, there was a long-standing animosity, I wouldn't say animosity, but certain tensions between Piedmont and Austria. Uh, and and that, that reflects the aspirations that uh, Piedmont had about becoming something more than as Charles put it, a, a, a middling state, right? A small state in, in, in the regional, kind of, of regional importance. But it, it, they certainly had greater aspirations. But those aspirations constantly ran across the Austrian presence in, in Italy. Um, so uh, there is, of course, internal tension in, within that alliance that Napoleon next season will will expertly exploit. Right. So this is the P Piedmont as the Prussia of um, of North Italy. Sorry, you have exactly the same situation um, between Bavaria and Austria. Bavaria is a very comparable state, and and you know you would you would think. I mean, the, the, the Bavarians are Catholic. The Austrians are Catholic. Bavaria is, well, it's not quite an absolute monarchy yet, but it's an absolute electorate or something. And yet relations between the two are historically very bad. Yeah, in 1805, as we'll see, the Austrian, uh, the Austrian thinking was that they will sway Bavarians to join their side by invading them. <laughs> Yeah, so we have quite a few interesting events coming up. <laughs> and of course, of course, the stronger France becomes and the more interest that she displays in, in territories beyond the Rhine or territories beyond the Alps, the more attractive she becomes as a partner and the more realistic it, it is to look to her as a protector. 
Because I think we probably see it as inevitable now, this process of aggrandizement for the bigger ones and, and then consolidation. And maybe this is a good opportunity to segue into our next interview, which is about Poland and, and the Polish partition. And again, you have Austria again, part of this process. This is turning once again to Adam Zamoyski, um, because it was in October 1795, on the 24th, that those Austrian, Prussian and Russian representatives met to formally dissolve the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But it was as much psychological as it is about territory. Let me give you a quote from their agreement, which is that in view of the necessity to abolish everything which could revive the memory of the existence of the Kingdom of Poland, now that the annulment of this body politic has been effected, the high contracting parties are agreed and undertake never to include in their titles the name or designation of the Kingdom of Poland which shall remain suppressed as from the present and forever. Well, what you're about to hear is a half interview with historian and author Adam Zamoyski. It really is a half interview, but a brief snippet, let's say, um, which uh, casts a light on on this part of Europe at the end of this series. And I, I began by asking him, what was the contemporary reaction to the Polish partition, this third partition of Poland? In all historical contexts, even at the worst moments of war, people still, um, uh, you know, they they eat and um, yes, and and go to the lavatory and make love and get married and get divorced and um, and give birth and die. Uh, and so people did, and all those who were actively involved were either carted off to Russia as prisoners or um, went into exile in in various parts of. Europe, mainly France, where many of them took um, service in in in, uh, um, in the French uh, military, but a large section of Polish population uh, were very much against Napoleon and didn't like the idea of siding with Napoleon at all. So that divided Polish opinion hugely, and I'd say that the majority of Poles, if you because if you count all the uh, the, the lowest classes who had no interest in, in um, a Polish state and didn't really know who, didn't really care who ruled over them, um, then probably the majority of the population, or certainly the majority of the population, just got on with their lives and didn't see any point of any, any more war. But, and this is an important point to make because these, these are very, very important in, in history, the doomed heroics of 1792, of 1794, and then the Napoleonic Wars, um, became an emotional and moral and um, iconographic uh, rallying point for Polish patriots for the next um, 120 years of captivity and inspired those who rushed to join up the new Polish army at the end of 1918 and, and to thrash the Bolsheviks in 1920. Right. Yes. Leaping well. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and, and I suppose at the time of the third partition itself, you, you could presumably, I think, see the seeds of future Polish nationalist efforts, but you could also see perhaps the mutual distrust and the suspicion with which Prussia, Russia and Austria would continue to view themselves in this area. And there's a clear thread linking through to Vienna there, but 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 even at the time, this was 
although it was the end of Poland's independent existence, the the Polish question con- continued. Very much so, because um, every every liberal in the, the Western constitutional states uh, regarded the partitions as an illegal and barbaric act. They regarded the slave-owning society of Russia as um, a pretty despotic and unpleasant um, place. Um, they didn't have much sympathy for the Prussian monarchy. Austria became under late Metternich, it was known as the China of Europe, where you you know, there was more books on the on the censorship lists than the, than the Vatican could ever have dreamt of. And the Poles were seen as the righteous downtrodden. And both on the right, this is what's so interesting, is that certainly in the, throughout the first half of the 19th century, uh, most of the British aristocracy were tremendously pro-Polish, and there was a terrific amount of pro-Polish voices um, on those uh, from that quarter, but so were all the Chartists and the um, the subversives. Yes. So uh, it, they, they um, Poland very much was still a very popular cause in Britain, um, really until the end of the third quarter of the nineteenth century, where it it sort of sank into oblivion. And indeed, after 1848, a lot of people began to see the Poles just as troublemakers. Things were going so well. Queen Victoria herself said something like, um, at the end of the, all the troubles in 1848, when everything was sort of calmed down, she, she said to somebody, or she wrote to somebody, um, I forget the exact quote, but she says something about, oh, and it's so awful how our nice Germans were, um, I don't know what came over them, but they they were all led astray, I think mainly by the Poles and the Jews. <laughs> oh, no, no, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. How awful. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, oh, so- dear. <laughs> So some brief reflections there from Adam Zamoyski recorded very early on in this process. You can see I was breaking all the rules. I was subsequently introducing about not getting ahead of ourselves. I don't think, I think we're somewhere off the Bolsheviks uh, in terms of being out of the scope of this podcast. Um, but uh, nevertheless, they do give us those little thoughts there from Adam, the opportunity to reflect on the broader European picture as it is at the end of 1795. So question to ask here is as we survey this part of the scene what's next for the for this ongoing relationship between russia austria and prussia and i wonder whether as things stand now in eastern europe is this a status quo that is sustainable um as we look ahead um into the next uh, couple of years yes the short answer will be yes, um, it, because in many respects, the Polish partitions uh, appeased each of these powers. Now, there are grumblings about the extent of the uh, territory sharing, because Russia uh, grabbed the lion's share of the partition. But nonetheless, each of the members received some portion of Polish state. And that, in some respects, appeased their eastern ambitions because none of them uh, want to go to war against each other. 
So Russia is certainly not capable of taking on Russians and Austrians have much bigger f- problems in the West and they need Russian support. So in that sense, it actually diffused the situation for now. In the previous episodes, we've talked about one crucial part of the story that we think, so for now, we, we've not been paying attention as much, and that is in the South East Europe, in the Balkan Peninsula. And that's where the really Russia-Austrian tensions will switch from now on towards the uh, territories that are formerly under the Ottoman control, but where Russians are clearly keen on expanding. So the alliance, as it, well, no, I wouldn't say even alliance, but the relationship will indeed endure. But the tensions will switch the focus from Poland to somewhere else. Yeah, Alex is quite right. Um, in the short term, you get detente. But in, in the long term, um, there, are, there are pressures which are going to revive. So, so uh, in, when, we get, when we get to uh, the Congress of Vienna, we're going to see a major crisis over Poland again. Uh, or, or rather over Saxony, to be precise. What I'd like to uh, just bring in here um, is the importance of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars um, to national myths. Um, it's, it's the case right across Europe. But let's talk about Poland. As, you know, Poland is, is somewhere I love, I know, I care about. OK, the Polish national anthem. Poland is not yet lost. March, March, Dombrowski. It's it's the march of the Polish volunteer legions in northern Italy, commanded by General Zabrowski. Go to any Polish military museum, and and if you look at the, 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 the section on 1794, you will see pictures of masses of sheepskin-clad peasants clutching scythes, Either, either kneeling um, to receive blessings from their priests or, or charging gallantly into battle against Russians armed with nothing more than scythe blades. This notion of the Polish people being absolutely bound up with the defence of the old kingdom of Poland, devoted to the, to, the, to the rebirth of the Kingdom of Poland, it remains very, very powerful, very, very strong to this day. And that's not me being critical of the Poles. I'm, I'm merely stating a fact. And it's something that you can see in one way or another in many other states in Europe, including not least France in its own way. Well, indeed, and you've been... Um not criticised, but I think people note that you are not um, taken away very much, not carried away by the sentiment here, and that actually a stark look at the reality of the situation shows that this was not quite so straightforward as um, the various mythologies suggest. Yeah. Um, the, the job of any good historian is to deconstruct mythologies, to challenge mythologies. No, I, I agree with Charles, is that... Um one way to look at it is you know, the way we kind of try to deconstruct the French revolutionary process by showing it that revolution gave some groups a lot, others not enough. And there was this kind of uh, tug of war between them for who benefited from revolution. But if we look at the Polish processes, right, and we've seen that Poland experiment with constitutionalism on the eve of the partitions. There, 
the benefits overwhelmingly went to the top tier. So there was nothing really that a, pe- a Polish peasant would have benefited from these changes. And of course, Russia as well, just as uh, keen on uh, increasing its territory as France. And that is a thing, one of the things that you know, we, we pay sufficient attention, but maybe not putting in a context that in the West, France is, is, is grabbing additional territory just as Russia is doing it in the East. Uh, Nikolai Karamzin, uh, the famous Russian historian who is writing, you know, who is contemporary of all of this, he's writing his great um, masterpiece of the Russian uh, history uh, right at this time. Uh, when he was uh, confronted with the criticism, West, you know, European criticism of the Russian partitions of Poland, he famously says, let the foreigners denounce or complain about it. We took what is ours. And here we see, therefore, these competing nationalist narratives. Uh, one Polish, which will be reflected in various poems, various uh, kind of paintings and everything that we've talked about, you know, what, what Charles referred to, right? This sense of, hey, for the next 123 years, uh, Poland will be missing, right? It will be in, in captivity, as Adam uh, Zamoyski point, uh, mentioned. But on the Russian side, it's also a reflection of this narrative that this is, part, you know, we were destined to take over this territory because ultimately we are all Slavs. This is part of Russian gathering of the Slavic lands uh, uh, in, a, in a world that is quite hostile to the Slavic interests. And that notion ultimately will evolve into something bigger, right? The pan-Slavism that Russians will use to such a great degree in the 19th century. Can I, can I pick up on the issue of um, we're only taking what is ours? That's a direct reflection uh, um, or has a counterpart in the French doctrine of the natural frontiers. The, the French take over Belgium, or the Austrian Netherlands, we, we should say. They take over the Rhineland. They take over Savoie. They take over Nice. What are they doing? They're taking what is naturally theirs. Because uh, the, the frontiers of the state, according to Rousseauian doctrine, um, or you know, the, the Rousseau concept of the natural, the borders should follow the natural frontiers. What is a natural frontiers? Well, the Pyrenees, that's sorted out. But the Rhine and the Alps. So in taking Belgium and so forth, all the French are doing in their eyes is taking what is theirs. The issue, of course, um, is whether they could have ever kept that. If they, if they had been prepared to live within those natural frontiers, to have put a check on their ambitions in the same way the Russians did, because the Russians took so much of Poland, but then didn't push it any further. They didn't try and take over the whole of Poland. We could, have, we could have had a very, very different history of the next 20 years or so. Although I have to point out, Charles, that if they could, they would have. See, that's the issue is that they, I don't think they could have taken all of Poland. Unlike France, see, France is in a position to be able to do so. I, I, you know, Albert Sorel, the great French historian, famously said that, you know, all the criticism of the French policy is effectively what other European powers were doing, but not doing well enough. And I, I kind of agree with that, is that 
this is a, a, a world where there is no international mechanism to constrain a state, a predatory behavior. If they could, they would. Yeah, no, I, 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 do, I do totally agree with that. Well, on this question of uh, countries' natural frontiers and, you know, where do you stop in terms of seeking uh, expansion? One, one country, one player we haven't spoken about yet in this episode, but has been very important through this series because of their ability to seek to project power through naval means and, um, and I suppose, expand colonial, is of course, is, of course, Britain. And as we come to the end of this second series and the end of 1795, Britain has had some successes. Cape Town captured in the last episode, for example. All sorts going on in the Caribbean in this period too. But there are clearly limits um, as to what the British can do, as we've seen in, uh, you know, with the ill-fated Quiberon Bay expedition and, and others as well. So for, for a nation like Britain, which, you know, its natural frontiers are pretty obvious, um, at least domestically. But I suppose it has um, something of an empire in mind. I think Britain is a very unique case in that sense, because as you, as you pointed out, it already filled out its own natural frontiers. Now what it is trying to do is to project its interests to areas that are key to its own interests, commercial interests, imperial interests. From that point of view, I think that's, it, it is quite different from the nature of imperialism on the continent. At no point will Britain rule the conquered territories with such if, um, direct intrusion and exploitation uh, uh, at this time as French would. Right. Um, at no point did they restructure the conquered areas to the degree that Napoleon would, would, would do. So I think the nature of British imperialism is, 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 is different. I am not, you know, I'm not the subscriber to that British Empire being the, you know, the result of absent-mindedness of British imperial rulers. There is certain logic behind the empire building, but there is no denying also to that willingness to compromise and, and, and give up. And Charles, what, what, what do you think is the best way of advancing British policy, given what we've seen in 1795 so far? So as the British contemplate 1796 and 97, you know, what is their best approach? On one level, um, the policy of filching Sugar Islands, as I think Fox put it, um, the, the, the colonial campaigns, they make a lot of sense because they bring in a lot of revenue and Britain can use that revenue to finance its aims on the continent, essentially, if you like, by, by, by paying subsidies to powers like Prussia to come in and do the fighting for them. So, yeah, OK, um, a colonial strategy makes a lot of sense, particularly at a time when... There's no way of striking directly at France. You know, there's no way that the British could have successfully landed at Quiberon Bay or wherever. Um, even, even had a substantial British army been landed at Quiberon Bay in 1795, would there have been a better result? No, I don't think so. So, OK, colonial strategy makes sense. But the trouble is... That it, as, uh, to go back to a point I've made before, it is also self-defeating because the more the British press ahead with a colonial strategy, 
the more cynical powers like Prussia and Austria and Russia get, and the more the French are able to make hay with propaganda, saying, look, look, all the British are doing feathering their own nests. Very, Britain is in a very, very difficult position, and I think that the constant stress on British naval power tends to obscure that. Now, we're coming to the end of this episode and indeed this series, and so I'm going to invite you both to um, comment on how far we've got, basically. So from 1792 to 1795, um, uh, the wheels have been set in motion, or a ball has been set rolling. A ball has been set rolling, which um, doesn't yet show many signs necessarily of, of coming to a stop. Now, we know... Uh, well, we're doing very well in um, avoiding recognizing that this is going to go on until 1815. But at the end of at the end of 17, we're trying our best anyway. Um, but at the end of 1795, where have we got to that the momentum started when the tumult of the French Revolution, translating through to military progress, to French growth, to Russian and Austrian aggrandizement, and Prussian as well. You've got this, you know, the British situation in terms of their involvement in on the continent, but also globally as well, and across the Atlantic in the Caribbean, the developing story of the Haitian slave revolt and its and its aftermath there. We've spoken as well about um, about the Turks and about Persia briefly, uh, and of course we've got India, which we'll be talking about more in season three. So much to cover off. I think it's going to get harder and harder to cover everything off, to be honest, but. As you look ahead now to 1796 and 1797, the challenge, without getting ahead of ourselves, not actually saying what is going to happen, but as things looked at the end of 1795, what would each of you say were the prospects as we look ahead now to the coming two years of violence and conflict and political turmoil that we've seen so far and is surely going to continue? Um, I think that point about ideology being supplanted if, if it were, if it ever was at the front and center of it uh, of, of the wars of conquest supplanted by the traditional interest is is to me one of the crucial moment you know, one of the crucial developments and in my own research I always point out that the to me French revolutionary wars are a continuation of the wars of the 18th century they start with under the facade a pretense of the ideological struggles, and certainly ideology plays a role. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty and the, the details, you see that it is the practical considerations, the old kind of geopolitical fault lines that really time and again come to, uh, come to fore. And here, this, uh, as of 1795, we see these fault lines again uh, reappearing, if they were, uh, if they were indeed ever gone, uh, and and deepening, um, so France might not be doing well in Rhineland at the end of 1795, but there is a great hope in uh, among the French military to turn the tide of war once again through the winter. Uh, they were uh, uh, hoping and aspiring for it. The Russians, uh, the Russian imperial interests have now been satiated by the. Um, conquest of Poland, 
and they certainly feel uh, quite quite excited about that. And we shouldn't also forget that in North America, in in this last uh, quarter of the 1795, uh, uh, an interesting development is taking place with the Treaty of San Lorenzo. If you are an American uh, listening to the podcast, the Pinckney's Treaty which um, also appeased American uh, territorial claims or interests at the expense of Spain by redrawing the borders between United States and Spanish Florida and giving United States access to the Mississippi River, which will have profound consequences uh, just a few years later when uh, this access to Mississippi will turn into a much larger American claim to the territory in what is today the south of the United States. So this narrative of imperial aggrandizement is not just limited to traditional empires, like Russian Empire, Habsburg Empire, but even republics, as here, French Republic, American Republic, are part and parcel of the struggle for influence, for power, for access, uh, that will play out over the next um, 20 years. Well, I mean, what I, what I see, I think, is um, a tendency towards the further de-ideologicalization of the of the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, yes, of course, we're going to see France setting up a series of satellite states. She's already got the Batavian Republic, and there are going to be others as well. To be said, the establishment of these states each of which has a, a French-style constitution, constitutes an ideological challenge. No, I don't think so. The, it, it, it's about the French developing mechanisms which allow them to control their sphere of influence, their expanding sphere of influence. We're going to see a growing willingness among the powers or a continued willingness among the powers to come to terms with France. I think that we're moving towards a de-ideologicalization of conflict in just the same way as, as we've moved from a revolutionary France to a post-revolutionary France. Yeah, that's great. That's a big, significant shift um, as we contemplate what now lies ahead. And we'll see the beginnings of that in 1796 and 1797 in the next series. But in the next series. But for now, well, thank you so much to both of you, to Charles and to Alex, um, for uh, once again uh, coming on and talking us through this the evolving situation. What a change it's been in in 94 and 95. You go from having Robespierre in charge to the Directory, the situation in Eastern Europe transformed, uh, and of course France uh, militarily in jeopardy at the start of 1794, but that seems to have resolved itself um, very satisfactorily for the French by the end of 1795. But there's much more to come uh, in the next season when we can look forward to um, more of the same music from Ben Eckersley, thanks to him. Uh, and of course, the, the countdown clock is continuing to tick at the end of this quarter and this season. There are 7,109 days to go until Waterloo. So I do hope in due course you'll join me for episode 17 to get season three underway. It might need one or two or three months or so, but bear with me, it'll, it'll come eventually. And among my guests in episode 17 will be Rafe Blaufar began to describe the state of the army of Italy as it gazes down on the Po Valley. The prospect of, of, of moving into 
the untouched Po Valley. This is the richest agricultural area of continental Europe, and it hasn't had a battle fought on it. It's untouched. They know that, and Napoleon tells them, that there's, they're, they're going to have full bellies and uh, full wallets when they, when they get there. Mm. 